The Ten Commandments continued. This commandment is enforced by three reasons. The first is drawn from the person who denounces judgment upon who, those who break it. He is described by his relationship, thy God, by the might of his power, for he, the Hebrew word for God here is strong one, able to vindicate his honor and avenge all insults thereto by a similitude taken from the stock of wedlock wherein unfaithfulness results in summary punishment. He is a jealous God. It is the Lord speaking after the manner of men, intimating that he will not spare those who mock him. They provoke him to jealousy with strange gods, by with abominations provide they him to anger. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. Deuteronomy 32:16-22. Second, a sore judgment is threatened, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. Visiting a is a figurative expression which signifies that after a space of time in which God appears to have taken no notice or have forgotten, he then shows by his providence that he has observed the evil ways and the doings of men. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? And shall not my soul be avenged on such nations as this? Jeremiah 5, 9, 32, 18, and Matthew 23, 34-36. This was designed to deter men from idolatry and by an appeal to their natural affections. The curse of the Lord righteously rests not only upon the person of an impious man, but also upon the whole family. J. Calvin It is a terrible thing to pass on to children a false conception of God, either by precept or by example. The penalty inflicted corresponds to the crime. It is not only that God punishes the child for the offenses committed by the parents, but that he gives them over unto the same transgressions and then deals with them accordingly. For the example of parents is not sufficient warrant for us to commit sin. Third, there is a most blessed encouragement to obedience in the form of the gracious promise, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. To the same effect he assures us, the just man walketh in his integrity, his children are blessed after him. Proverbs 20-7 Love for God is evidenced by a keeping of his commandments. Papists contend that their use of images is with the object of promoting love by keeping a visible image before them as an aid, but God says it is because they hate him. This promise to show mercy unto thousands of descendants of those who truly love God does not express the universal principle, as is clear from the case of Isaac having a godless Esau and David and Absalom. The legislator never intended to establish in this case such an invariable rule as would derogate from his own free choice. When the Lord exhibits one example of this blessing, he affords a proof of his constant and perpetual favor to his worshipers. Observe here, as elsewhere in Scripture, Jude 14, for example, God speaks of thousands and not millions, as men so often do, thousands of them that love him who manifest the genuineness of their love by keeping his commandments. His flock is but a little one. Luke 12 32, and that should be repeated. His flock is but a little one. What cause for thanksgiving unto God have those born of pious parents who treasure up not wrath for them but prayer? The third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord, thy God, in vain. For the Lord will hold, not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. As a second commandment concerns the manner in which God is to be worshipped, namely according to his revealed will, so this one holds us worship him with that frame of spirit which is agreeable to the indignity and solemnity of such an exercise 
and the majesty of him with whom we have to do, that is, with the utmost sincerity, humility, and reverence. Fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 28:58. Oh, what high thoughts we ought to entertain of such a being, and what holy awe we should stand of him. The end of this precept is that the Lord will have the majesty of his name to be held inviolably sacred by us. Whatever we think and whatever we say of him should savor of his excellency, correspond to the sacred sublimity of his name, and tend to the exaltation of his magnificence, Calvin. Anything pertaining to God should be spoken with the greatest sobriety. Let us first endeavor to point out that the scope and comprehensiveness of this commandment, by the name of the Lord our God, has signified God himself as he is made known to us, including everything through which he has been pleased to reveal himself, his word, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, and his works. The name of God stands for the very nature and very being, as in Psalm 20, verse 1, 135, verse 3, John 1, verse 12, and so forth. Sometimes the name of God is taken for the entire system of divine truth. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God, Micah 4, 5. In that way, the truth and worship which he has appointed, I have manifested thy name unto, men thou, unto the men thou gavest me, John 17, 6, instructed them in the heavenly doctrine. But usually, and more specifically, the name of God refers to that by which he is called and made known to us. To take his name means to employ or make use of the same as the object of our thoughts or the subject of our speech. Not to take his name in vain is a negative way of saying it must be held in the utmost awe and used totally in thought and word and deed. It will thus be seen that this commandment requires us to make mention of the name of God, since he has given us so many and gracious discoveries of himself, it would evince the vilest contempt of the greatest of privileges if we expressed no regard to those discoveries and made no use of the same. Those who make no religious profession and desire not to be instructed in those things which relate to the divine glory are guilty of this slighting the Most High. But we make use of God's name in public worship, in private prayer, when asking religious oaths or making, when taking religious oaths or making solemn vows. When we draw nigh to God in prayer, we should adore the divine perfections with a becoming humility, as did Abraham, Genesis 18:27; Jacob, Genesis 32:10; Moses, 15, Exodus 15:11; Solomon, Kings, 1 Kings 8:33; Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19:15; Daniel 9:4; the inhabitants of heaven, Romans, Revelations 4:10 and 11. Negatively, this commandment prohibits all dishonoring thoughts of God, all needless, flippant, profane, or blasphemous mentions of Him. Any irreverent use of his word, any murmurings against his providence, any abuse of anything by which he has made himself known. Let us now point out more specifically some of the ways in which God's name may be taken in vain. First, when it is used without propounding to ourselves a due end, and there are but two ends which can warrant our use of any of his names, titles, or attributes, his glory and the edification of ourselves and others. Whatsoever is beside these is frivolous, an evil, affording no sufficient ground for us to make mention of such a great and holy name which is so full of glory and majesty. Unless our speech be designedly directed to the advancement of the divine glory or the promotion of the benefit of those to whom we speak, we are not justified in having God's ineffable name upon our lips. He accounts himself highly and solid when we mention his name to idle purpose. God's name is taken in vain by us when we use it without due consideration and reverence. 
Whensoever we make mention of him who, before whom the seraphim veil their faces, we ought seriously and solemnly to ponder his infinite majesty and glory and bow our hearts in deepest prostration before that lovely name. They who think and speak of the great God promiscuously and at random, how can they use his name with reverence when all the rest of the, their discourse is filled with froth and vanity? That name is not to be sported with and tossed to and fro upon every light tongue. O oh, my reader, form the habit of solemnly considering whose name it is you are about to utter, that it is the name of him who is present with thee, hearing thee pronounce it, who is jealous of his honor, and who will dreadfully avenge himself upon those who have slighted him. God's name is used in vain when it is employed hypocritically, when we profess to be his people and not. Israel of old was guilty of this sin. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by my name, by the name of Israel, <coughs> and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, not in righteousness. Isaiah 48.1 They used the name of God, but not of but did not obey the revelations contained therein, and so violated this third commandment. Compare Matthew 7:22-23. When using the name of God, we must not we must do so in a way which is true to its meaning and to its implications. Otherwise, he says to us, "Why call ye me mortal? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say?" Luke 6:46. In like manner, we are guilty of this awful sin when we perform holy duties lightly and mechanically, our affections not being in them. Prayer without practice is blasphemy. To speak to God with our lips while our hearts are far from him is not but mocking of him and an increase of our condemnation. God's name is taken in vain when we swear lightly and irreverently using the name of God with as little respect as we would show to that of a man, or when we swear falsely and are guilty of perjury. When we are placed on oath and we attest that to be true which we do not know to be true or which we know to be false, we are guilty of one of the gravest sins which man can possibly commit, for he has solemnly called upon the great God to witness that which the Father of lies has prompted him to speak. He that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, Isaiah 65:16. Therefore it behooves him to consider well what he deposes to be true or not. Last oath has become so excessively multiplied among us, being interwoven, as it were, into the body politic, and so generally disregarded that the enormity of this offense is scarcely considered. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oaths. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Zechariah 8.17 And what shall be said of that vast throng of profane swearers who pollute our language and would wound our ears by a vile mixture of excretions and blasphemies in their common conversation? Their throat is an open sepulcher. The poison of asp is under the lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Romans 3:13 and 14. Utterly vain is their thoughtless plea that they mean no harm. Vain their excuse that all their companions do the same. Vain their plea that it is merely to relieve their feelings. What a madness it is when men anger thee to strike against God and provoke him far more than others could provoke thee. But though their fellows do not censor, the police arrest, or the magistrate punish them as the law of our land requires, yet the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as his, with his garments, so let it come unto his bowels like water. Psalms 109, 17, and 18. God is dreadfully incensed by this sin and the common commission of this heaven Insulting crime, our country has incurred a terrible debt.
It has become almost impossible to walk the streets or enter mixed company without hearing the sacred name of God treated with blasphemous contempt. The novels of the day, the stage, even the wireless are terrible offenders, and without doubt this is one of the fearful signs against himself for which God is now pouring out his judgment upon us. Of old he has said unto Israel, Because of swearing, cursing, the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and the course is ever evil. Jeremiah 23.10 And he is still the same. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Sore punishment shall be his portion. If not in this life, then most assuredly so, eternally so, in the life to come. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do not do any work. Exodus 20:8-10. This commandment denotes that God is the sovereign Lord of our time, which is to be used and approved by us according as he has here specified. It is to be carefully noted that it consists of two parts, each of which bears directly upon the other. Six days shalt thou, not mayest thou, labor, as is as divinely binding upon us as remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is a precept requiring us diligently to attend unto that vocation, the state of life in which the divine providence has placed us to perform its offices with care and conscience. The revealed will of God is that man should work, not idle away his time, that he should work not five days a week for which organized labor is agitated, but six. He who never works is unfitted for worship. Work is to pave the way for worship, as worship is to fit us for work. The fact that any man can escape the observance of his of this first half of the commandment is a sad reflection upon our modern social order and shows how far we have departed from the divine plan and ideal. The more diligent and faithful we are in performing the duties of the six days, the more shall we value the rest of the seventh. It will thus be seen that the appointing of the Sabbath was not any arbitrary restriction upon man's freedom, but a merciful provision for his good that it is designed as a day of gladness and not of gloom. It is the Creator's gracious exempting us from our life of mundane toil one day in seven, granting us a foretaste of that future and better, better life for which the present is but a probation, when we may turn wholly from that which is material to that which is spiritual, and thereby be equipped for taking hold with new consecration and renewed energies upon the work of the coming days. It should thus be quite evident that this law for the regulation of man's time was not a temporary one, designed for any particular dispensation, but is continuous and perpetual in the purpose of God. The Sabbath was made for man, Mark 2.27, and not simply for the Jew, made for man's good. What has been pointed out above as upon the twofoldness of this divine statute receives clear and irrefragable confirmation in the reason given for its enforcement. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that was in them, and rested the seventh day, verse 11. Observe well the twofoldness of this. The august creator deigned to set an example before his creatures in each respect. He worked for six days. He rested the seventh day. It should be also be pointed out that the appointing of work for man is not consequence of sin. Before the fall, God put him into the Garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. Genesis 2.15 the lasting nature of perpetuity of this twofold commandment is further in evidence by the fact that in the above reason given for its enforcement, there was nothing which was peculiarly pertinent to the nation of Israel, 
but instead that which speaks with clear and voice to the whole human race. Moreover, this statute was given a place not in the ceremonial law of Israel, which was to be done away with when Christ fulfilled his type, but in the moral law, which was written by the finger of God himself upon the tables of the stone to signify its lasting nature. Finally, it should be pointed out that the very terms of this commandment make it unmistakable to claim that it was not designed only for the Jews, for it was equally binding upon any Gentiles who dwelt among them, even though they were not in covenant with God, nor under the ceremonial law, yet they were required to keep the Sabbath holy. Thou shalt not do any work, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Verse 10. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Note well, it is not said here or anywhere else in Scripture, the seventh day of the week, but simply the seventh day, that is, the day following the sixth of work. With the Jews, it was the seventh day of the week, namely Saturday. But for us, is the another day of Hebrew 4.8 plainly intimates the first day of the week because the Sabbath not only commemorates the work of creation, but it now also celebrates the yet greater work of redemption. Thus the Lord so worded the fourth commandment as to suit both the Jewish and the Christian dispensations and therefore intimated by its perpetuity. The Christian Sabbath is from midnight Saturday to midnight Sunday. It is clear from John 20, verse 1, that it began before sunrise, and therefore we may conclude it starts at Saturday midnight, while from John 20, verse 19, we learn that the fact that it is not there called the evening of the second day, that it continues throughout that evening, and that our worship is also to continue therein. But though the Christian Sabbath does not commence till midnight on Saturday, yet our preparation for it must begin sooner, or how else can we obey its express requirements? In it thou shalt not do any work. On the Sabbath there is to be a complete resting of the whole day, not only from natural recreations and doing our own pleasures, Isaiah 58:13, but from all worldly employment. The wife needs a day of rest just as much as her husband, yea, being the weaker vessel, the more so. Such things as porridge and soup can be prepared on the Saturday and heated on the Sabbath, and thus that we may be entirely free to delight ourselves in the Lord and give ourselves completely to his worship and service. Let us also see to it that we do not work or sit up late on Saturday night, that we encroach upon the Lord today by staying late in bed or making ourselves drowsy for his holy duties. The commandments make it clear that God is to be worshipped in the home, which of course inculcates the practice of family worship. It is addressed more specifically than any of the other nine commandments to the heads of households and employers because God requires them to see to it that all under their charge shall observe the Sabbath. To them more immediately God says, Remember the Sabbath days to keep it holy. It is to be strictly set apart for the honor of the thrice holy God, spent in the exercise of holy contemplation, meditation, adoration. Because it is a day which he has made, Psalm 118.24, we must do nothing to unmake it. This commandment forbids the omission of any duties required or careless performing of the same or a weariness in them. The more faithfully we keep this commandment, the better prepared we are to obey the other nine. Three classes of works and three only may be engaged in on the Holy Sabbath. Works of necessity, which are those that could not be done on the preceding day and that cannot be deferred until the next day, such as tending to cattle. Works of mercy, which are those that compassion requires us to perform unto other creatures such as ministering to the sick, works of piety, which are the worship of God in public and in private, using with thankfulness and delight all the means of grace to which he has provided. We need to watch and strive against the very first suggestion of Satan to corrupt our heart, divert our minds, or disturb us in the holy duties, praying earnestly for help to meditate upon God's word and to retain what he gives us. 
The Lord makes the sacred observance of his day a special blessing, and contrariwise he visits the profanation of the Sabbath with special curse. See Nehemiah 13, 17, and 18, as our guilty land is now proving to its bitter cost. A Sabbath well spent brings a week of content and strength for the toil of the morrow, but a Sabbath profane, whate'er may be gained, is a certain forerunner of sorrow. Commandment. This commandment to honor parents is much broader in its scope than appears at first. It is not to be restricted to our literal father and mother, but is to be understood of all our superiors. The end of the precept is that since the Lord God desires the preservation of order, he has appointed the degrees of preeminence fixed by him ought to be involuntarily preserved. The sum of it, therefore, will be that we should reverence them whom God has egalled to any authority over us and shall render them honor, obedience, and gratitude. But as this precept is exceedingly repugnant to the depravity of human nature, those whose ardent desire of exaltation will scarcely admit of subjection, it has therefore proposed as an example that kind of superiority which is natural, most amiable, and least invidious, because that might the more easily mollify and incline our minds to the habit of submission. Calvin. Least any of our readers in this socialistic and communistic age, when insubordination and lawlessness is the evil spirit of our day, demur against this wider interpretation of the commandment, let it be pointed out, first, that since honor brings primarily the princi- and principally to the God, that secondarily and derivatively is, pertains also unto those whom he hath dignified and made nobles in his kingdom, by raising them above all others and bestowing titles and dominion upon them so that they are to be revered by us as fathers and mothers. In Scripture, the word honor has an extensive application as may be seen from 1 Timothy 5.17, 1 Peter 2.17, and so forth. Second, observe that the title father is given to kings, 1 Samuel 24.11, Isaiah 49.23, masters, 2 Kings 5.13, ministers of the gospel, 2 Kings 2.12, Galatians 4.19. For it ought not to be doubted that God here lays down the universal rule for our conduct, namely that to everyone whom we know to be placed in authority over us by his appointment, should we should render reverence, obedience, gratitude, and all the other services in our power. Nor does it make any difference whether they are worthy of this honor or not. For whatever be their characters, yet it is not without the appointment of the divine providence that they should have attained that station on account of which the supreme legislation legislator has commanded them to be honored. He has particularly enjoined reverence to our parents who have brought us into this life, Calvin. It scarcely needs to be said that the duty enforced here is of reciprocal nature, those of inferiors implying a corresponding obligation on superiors. But limited space obliges us to consider here only the duties resting on subjects and their rulers. First children to their parents. They are to love and reverence them, fearful of offending out of the respect they bear them. A genuine filial veneration is to actuate children so that they abstain from whatever would grieve or offend their parents. They are to be subject unto them. Mark the blessed example which Christ has left, Luke 2.51. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord, Colossians 3.20. After David was anointed for the throne, he fulfilled his father's appointments by tending his sheep, 1 Samuel 16:19. They are to hearken to their instructions and imitate their godly practices, Proverbs 6:20. Their language must ever be respect, and their gestures betoken submission. Though Joseph was so highly exalted in Egypt, he bowed himself with his face to the ground before his father, Genesis 48:12. And note how King Solomon honored his mother, 1 Kings 2:19. 
As far as they are able and their parents have need, they are to provide for them in old age, 1 Timothy 5.16. Our duties to rulers and magistrates whom God has set over us, these are God's deputies and vice-regents being invested with authority from him by me king's reign, Proverbs 8.15. God hath ordained majesty for the general good of mankind, for were it not for these men would be savage beasts preying upon one another. Did not the fear of magistrates restrain those who have cast off the fear of God? Were they not afraid of temporal punishments, which should be as safe among lions and tigers as among men? They are to be honored in our thoughts, regarding them as the official images of God upon earth, Ecclesiastes 10.20. They are to be revered in our speeches, supporting their office and authority. Of the wicked it is written that they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. 2 Peter 2.20 We are to obey them. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to the governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of, the, of them that do well. 1 Peter 2.13.14 We are to render tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. Romans 13.7 We are to pray for them. 2 Timothy 2.12 the duties of the servants unto their masters, they are to obey them. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service or as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Colossians 3.22 They are to be diligent in duties, seeking to promote their masters' interests, showing all good fidelity. Titus 2.10 and see Ephesians 6.5.7 They are to patiently suffer their rebukes and corrections, not answering again. Titus 2.9 so strictly has God enjoined them to quiet submission to their masters that even when a servant has given no just cause for rebuke, yet he is to silently suffer the groundless anger of his masters. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy of a man for a conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. 1 Peter 2, 18, 20. Oh, how far we have wandered from that divine standard. Finally, we should mention pastors and their flocks, ministers and their people, for between them also is such a relation of superiors and inferiors as bring them under the direction of this fifth commandment. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Hebrews 13:17. Christ has so vested his servants with authority that he declares, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despises you despises me, Luke 10:16. So again, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5:17. This double honor is that of reverence and maintenance. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things, Galatians 6:6 6, and 1 Corinthians 9:11. How solemn is the warning of, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till there was no remedy, 2 Chronicles 36:16. To this precept is added the promise as a motive and encouragement to obedience, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord God giveth thee. First, as in Old Testament promises, this is to be regarded typically of the eternal life promised by the gospel, as Canaan was a figure of heaven, second it is to be repeated in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 2, 3, and 1 Peter 3, 10. It is often God's way to lengthen out an obedient and holy life. Third, but all promises of earthly blessings must necessarily apply this condition. They shall be literally fulfilled unto us if they would promote our eternal happiness. Otherwise, they would be threatenings and not promises. 
In his mercy, God often abridges this promise and takes his beloved unto himself. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20.13. In the first five commandments, we have seen how God safeguarded his own glory. In the second five, we are now to behold how he provides for the security and well-being of men. First, for the protection of man's person. Second, for the sanctity and the good of his family. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Third, for the safety of his estate and substance. Thou shalt not steal. Fourth, for his reputation and good name. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And finally, as a strong fence about the whole law, God not only prohibits outward crimes, but inward motions of evil, or and our thoughts and affections thou shalt not covet. It is the first of these regulations which specifically relates to our neighbor what we shall now con- that we shall now consider thou shalt not kill. The sixth commandment prohibits the barbarous and inhuman sin of murder, which is the f- firstborn of the devil, who is a murderer from the beginning, John 8:44. It is the first crime we read of after the fall of Adam and Eve, whereon the corruption transmitted to their descendants was fearfully displayed by Cain, his rancor and enmity, goading him to slay Abel because his brother's works were righteous and his own evil, 1 John 3.12. But this commandment is not restricted to forbidding the actual crime of murder. It prohibits all the degrees and causes of it as rash anger and hatred, slanders and revenge, whatever may prejudice the safety of our neighbor or tempt him, tempt us to see him perish when it is in our power to relieve and rescue him. Let us begin by pointing out that every killing of a man is not murder. It is not so in the execution of justice when the magistrate sentences a slayer, for he is vested with lawful authority to put capital offenders to death, and if he fails to do so, then God will charge it upon him as sin. Whoso sheddeth a man's blood by a man shall his blood be shed. Genesis 9.6 states the general and unchanging principle. Thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Deuteronomy 19.21 is God's order to the magistrate. Nor is the shedding of blood in a righteous war chargeable with murder. It is lawful to take up arms against an invader and to recover what has been unjustly taken away. Thus David pursued the Amalekites who had carried away his wives captive. So too, for the punishing of some great injury or wrong, David made war upon the Ammonites for their outraging of his ambassadors, Second Samuel 10. As there are some who decry the assertion and denounce all war as unlawful in this Christian dispensation, let us point out, when soldiers came to Christ for forerunner for instructions, what did he say, Luke 3.14? He did not say, Fight no more, abandon your calling, but gave them directions on how they should conduct themselves. When the centurion came to the Savior and drew arguments from his military calling, our Lord did not condemn his profession or rebuke him for holding an off- such an office. Instead, he highly commended his faith, Luke 7, 8, and 9. When examined by Pilate, Christ declared, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... Then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. John 18.36 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at 
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.